internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a build of God and reach the side of the ocean floor. Hello, welcome to the show, and today we are going to do the first of what I hope to be many episodes on the German thinker, historian, and philosopher Oswald Spengler. If you've been following my content from the beginning, which I know there's a few of you who've stuck with me through multiple suspensions on Twitter, um, you'll see that he's probably the most important thinker to me, or one of the top three or five. And I talk about him a lot, but I've been wanting to lay out a comprehensive uh, analysis and insight and sort of overview of his work. And in true Astroflight fashion, I'm starting at the end because I have two special guests here, Monophthalmos and Spurgler Acolyte, who are two uh, Spengler adepts such as myself. And we're actually going to at least start the show today talking about a work that was only recently translated into English called The Early Stages of World History. I'm going to let Mono give us the, uh, you know, overview of this work, but uh, apparently it's only one volume of a larger volume called War- World History from the Beginning. And one of the volumes of it, the other volume is called Primal Questions, and that is untranslated. Now, I've been aware of the existence of this work for several years, but I sort of figured it was never going to be accessible to me. But again, it was recently translated a couple of months ago. Spurgler's reading the English version of Early Stages of World History. And Mono has read them both in German. Now, Mono, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you told me you've actually read Spengler's entire body of work. Yes, so far I've read pretty much everything. Um, there's still new stuff produced. So there's still a couple of uh, things left in, in archives which have not been printed so far. But uh, as far as the published stuff goes, I've pretty much read it all. And then uh, I guess just to give the audience, I I want to try to make this comprehensible to someone who's never read Spengler, but maybe come across his ideas online or or in other people's work and have some at least minimal familiarity with his perspective, but uh, have never never dived in. So just to give people ideas where we're coming from uh, and the the basis we have – Mano, you also have, I don't really know exactly what it is, a degree, or you've, you've somehow studied the Weimar Republic formally. I don't know in exactly what capacity. I studied history and philosophy here in Germany, and well, formally uh, in, in college. I quite recently finished my master's degree and hope to proceed to a PhD, but, uh, well, we'll see about that. And, and in that capacity, I have, uh, I have studied the Weimar Republic, yes. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on to get a uh, the the reason why we're starting at the end um, and starting in a place for like serious Spengler readers is because I was overjoyed that I found a German speaker from Germany who was willing to come on the show. So uh, that's why we're starting at this this sort of advanced uh, stage for Spengler. So well, thank thanks you for having me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real honor. And actually, I can I can 
already see uh well we're going to be doing this many more times so you're you're welcome you have basically an open invitation um just so people know i've read decline of the west volume one and two in english uh man and technics the arctos press version is great actually i have the uh rogue scholar copy of decline of the west which is excellent but i'm thinking about picking up the arctos version too because i think it has the maps in it the rogue scholar doesn't and then i also read uh hour of decision the rogue scholar edition of that too and then uh spurgler i met on twitter because he was posting a lot about spangler and uh got my spangler juices flowing again so it's great to see uh it's great to see and he's got really good insight and you're pretty well read yourself so why don't you give us a quick overview of what you've read by spangler yeah absolutely uh thanks for having me it's a real pleasure to be here uh in terms of what i've read of spangler's so about maybe three years ago now i found decline of the west uh, I was at the time actually studying uh, late Roman Republic politics, and I had a recommendation from a friend that if that was what I was interested in, and making comparisons to modern politics, that uh, I should check out Spangler. And uh, once I found Spangler, it was just you know nonstop reading. I read Decline of the West, Volume One, Volume Two, uh, and then more recently, I've been branching out into his more political stuff. So. Uh, I, I reviewed Prussianism and socialism before uh, this show, and uh, we've done some spaces on man and techniques, which have been a lot of fun looking at his ideas on technology. And uh, over in October, I think it was, there was a recent English translation, as you mentioned, of early days of world history. And uh, in the past few weeks, I've finally had the time to start kind of delving into that and uh, seeing this much more organic transformation of Spangler's philosophy. So that's... Uh, it's kind of my my uh, experience with Spengler. Yes, good. I like that you said the your interest in late Roman history because that's that was one of the things that really captured me. And reading him really gave me a good perspective on it. I'm also very interested, as people know, in literary and art, film criticism. And so far, Spengler gives the best perspective. And having spoken to many an art critic or artist, I now realize that I. <laughs> I may be alone in that thinking like Spengler possesses like the true perspective because I get pushback when I talk to people. But uh, nevertheless, I haven't I haven't seen anybody uh, frame the the history of Western art as well as he has. Um, but that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about the early stages of world history and the importance of that study to Spengler and the importance like the perspective it provides um, to readers of Spengler on his earlier work. But before we get there, I'm wondering if Mono can sort of surmise the contents of the book and as well as the state that it was in uh, when he died. Now, the state was, that it was in is, uh, let's quickly put, it was complete chaos. Um, it's only to a certain degree a book by Spengler, which was ultimately published, because when... When Spengler died, he had not fleshed it completely out as a as a piece of work. There were tables of contents and uh, tons and tons of maps with sheets of paper where he had uh, written notes and everything. But it was not a, rel a readily compiled book. Um, this was only done by his sister and his niece uh, after his death. Many of the, the notes were transcribed with a typewriter. And then later on in the 1950s... Um, the two volumes, Primal Questions and Early Days of World History, were produced from these notes. So 
while everything in these books has been written by Spengler, this is not a finished product by Spengler. So there's a, a little asterisk you might have to have to put on it, but um, so it, it's a compiled work from the estate of Spengler. How, how, what's the experience of reading it like? Is it sort of um, broken and fractured, or does it read like a narrative? It's essentially a collection of aphorisms. Some of them spend several pages. Some of them are just a few lines. Um, it visually, it almost it looks like a book by Nietzsche. So it's very unlike the Decline of the West, and uh, that goes for both volumes, by the way. Um, so it's not. It has not been turned into a fully fleshed out text, but ultimately it's unclear which part of the book were meant to uh, read as a normal, quote unquote, normal, normal book and which were meant to be left as aphorisms. Um, as a consequence of this, some repetitions can't be avoided. Of course, uh, owing to the fact that you try to include as much of the, the notes as you could. Um, so it's not quite as, um, refined as a text as the decline of the west a bit more uh rough if you will yeah that makes sense now it's um primal questioned in early stages of world history the only thing that immediately comes to mind is he probably uh got much more in depth on the mesoamerican cultures because he kind of briefly mentions them in decline of the west and says he hasn't done a lot of research and actually i think he says uh, they haven't been fully fleshed out by anyone, really, uh, and their significance. Um, so what does he address and what does he study and cover in those books? And is Mesoamerica a focus of his? In these two volumes, Mesoamerica is not really present. Um, yeah, there is, on, on this note, one smaller essay he, he produced on, um, uh, which is in, included in, in another, uh, volume of collected speeches by his where he talks a little bit about a possible migration from asia to uh, to to mesoamerica but um apart from that in in the two larger volumes primal questions and early days of world history um he is a lot more um theoretical if you will and metaphysical he is less uh, specific and concrete compared to the decline of the west um in the early 20s parallel to Oswald Spengler's uh, political dabblings in the Weimar Republic, uh, he encountered a man called Leo Frobenius, who had studied primitive cultures in Africa, and um, the two had a falling out eventually, but, but until then, uh, Frobenius had made some impression on Spengler. And one criticism that of Frobenius that really got to Spengler was the, the point that Spengler had mostly just addressed the high cultures in the, in the decline of the West, well, arguably, arguably, large parts of human history aren't covered by this. M many millennia are not uh, spent in the stage of being a high culture. And uh, this is essentially what which Bengler tried to accomplish in the latter half of his uh, literary life, where he, as he put it, tried to close the gap between the point where the human soul becomes distinct from his animalic roots to the point where uh, the stage of high culture is uh, entered. So this is a, a massive uh, project covering essentially human history for tens of thousands of years. Uh, this is very interesting to learn. Now, a quick note, if you read The Clan of the West, as far as I'm concerned, 
his thesis and his perspective really was only constructed around the high cultures and civilization. So this is the first I'm hearing of this criticism, but it doesn't seem like that relevant of a criticism when his purpose was to address civilization and high culture. But that debates for another time. Um, I'm very interested in two things you said. First, you said it's more metaphysical, which I didn't expect. I expected it to be more uh, of a history book. And then the other thing you said, the the human soul becoming distinct from its animal source. Uh, that makes sense because that seems to be a concern of his in Man and Technics. And uh, me and Spurgler have spoken about this before, that uh, technology seems to be in the use of technology. Well, Technics seems to be the thing that Spengler says brings us up out of nature and into history, which I won't give uh, his... Uh, Elsewhere, I plan to to to, to really lay out his, uh, his the the differentiation between um, history and and uh, nature that he makes, and it's like the the prehistoric cultures are in nature, and then they rise up into history. And it seems that his argument is one of the things that makes that happen is technology and use of technology. It's not quite that cut and dry. Uh, so I'm interested to hear. That he focuses a lot on the human soul becoming distinct. Uh, and so I'd like you to elaborate on both just ha- how it's metaphysical and um, any details about the, the human soul becoming distinct from the, the animal form. Now, um, the, the whole project of writing a human history from the very beginning was um, split into several publications. And the two tomes that were produced in the early 1960s, Primal Questions being the more metaphysical one and early days of world history being a bit more uh, hands-on and historical um the two books are in that sense have a bit of a, a, a different thrust and in early days of world history Spengler essentially produces um a model of four stages of human development um he did not come up with a a, a final um, terminology for these stages. Um, so he simply uh, has them as A, B, C, and D. Um, as far as I can tell from my <clears throat> pirated version of <laughs> the English translation of Early Days of World History, um, the table from the German version is not included. But to give a quick rundown, um, the four stages A, B, C, and D um are not of equal length. Stage D is the stage of high cultures, as he covers in The Decline of the West. And A, B, and C are, so to speak, working towards this. The stage C is the one that gets arguably the most attention in early days of world history, where he speaks about pre-cultures, from which essentially the high cultures later emerge. This question of pre-cultures versus high-cultures is one of the points where latter authors have uh, wondered if one of the reasons why Spengler never finished his massive uh, endeavor could have been that he would have to um, uh, redact or reverse some of the, retract some of the things he had said in The Decline of the West, namely the complete lack and absence of mutual uh, influence by the various high-cultures. Um, personally, I don't think that. I think every thinker who paints himself into a corner gets himself out of that. But um, 
that is essentially the the focal point, if you will, of early days of world history. Now, um, A and B are not as fleshed out. Arguably, man and techniques and primal questions uh, go a bit more into these, well, primal, as the as the name says, uh, aspects of of humanity. For example, in primal questions, there's a pretty long um, there's a pretty long uh, segment simply titled "Flame," where he has uh, countless aphorisms on man's relationship to fire, fire as a symbol, and so on and so on. Yeah, Mono, that was really great. I want to go back to what you were talking there about uh, the different stages of cultural development in Spangler's work on prehistory. So in at least in the Anglophone world, there hasn't been much that's been written about Spangler, but one of the few people that have uh, written books on Spangler is this guy, John Farenkopf. And in his works, he presents this idea uh, describing what you just mentioned, that there's this transformation at play in Spangler's work where uh, he kind of toys with this idea of a larger development of what we might call universal history of mankind and how Spengler, perhaps he didn't want to go too far into this out of fear of uh, undermining what he said in decline of the West. But I, I think you're completely right, actually, that a lot of this is actually not contradictory to what he said in uh, decline of the West, that decline of the West uh, in terms of the language he uses here in uh, early days of world history, that it, it only applies to the D cultures. And what he's really trying to do is he's trying to, to fill in the gaps of the rest of human history of, of Homo sapiens, really. And uh, it, it's just quite an interesting, interesting work. Uh, he's, he's recognizing that there's this organic evolution of what we might call the typus of human society, that it evolves from these different sorts of, or these different species of culture. And uh, that, that also you kind of see that in man and technics that there's this transition to like a, a much broader contextualizing of the sorts of ideas that he found in decline of the West. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things you always have to account for with Spener is that he does not simply uh, presupposes one type of human for all of mankind for, for all times. Um, he quite literally denies it. Uh, as you probably all know, um, it's not just um, a, a mannerism that the cultures are devoid of, of mutual influence. Um, they literally can't understand each other. They are spiritually different species, almost. So I don't I don't get why that wouldn't be the case between the stages that, that Spengler proposes. If the same thing is true between contemporary humans of different high cultures, why the same wouldn't be true of uh, humans living in the B or C stage compared to the D stage. You know, Mono, I'm kind of interested. So I've only been kind of reading this book recently. I'm maybe about a quarter of the way through it. And there's just a lot of interesting ideas in here in this book on prehistory. Um, maybe before I ask a question about what he means by amoeba, uh, I understand that this book has kind of an interesting history behind its publication. We had some Twitter threads, I think, a few months ago where we were talking about I think that there was this journal on world history that Spengler was kind of working with. I think it was some sort of disciple of Edward Mayer. And uh, 
how some of the things in this book were supposed to be a part of that journal, if I'm not mistaken. Um, absolutely. So, um, the two volumes are not the only works of Spengler that have been produced in the, the context of his larger project of world history right from the beginning. Um, Man and Techniques is essentially a part of that larger work, and I think it's all, uh, even mentioned in the, in the preface of Man and Techniques. And Spengler had planned a 10-part series of essays on the history of the second millennium before Christ. And he only really got to work on the first two of these essays, and they were indeed published in a, in a historical magazine, which was run by a man called Hans-Erich Stier, a disciple by Eduard Meyer, who was uh, admired by Spengler and corresponded with him. And uh, the first of these essays was finished. It was um, called Tartessos und Alashia, which, and he, he basically talked about the history of the Mediterranean, of pre-cultures living around uh, the Mediterranean, essentially, and uh, on naval, uh, naval trade, naval warfare of these days. And the second essay was apparently never quite finished and published in an unfinished stage by, by Stier. And this was essentially, I think you could say, a text on the ethnogenesis of the Greeks, so the, the absolutely early stages of Hellenic history. And uh, well, sadly, the other other essays never got uh, never got published or written, for that matter. If you hadn't said it already, I, I I'm sorry, I missed it. What uh, what year, uh, like what time frame are we talking about here? When did he start working on this? I believe it was Man and Technics 1932 and The Hour of Decision 34. Um. It's 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 hard to say when he worked on on what exactly. So to to go through through everything chronologically, um, by early 1924, the the waters calm for for the Weimar Republic and Spengler was essentially done with with politics. I think the last of his political writings, larger political writings for some time, was uh, rebuilding the German Reich, which was written in the summer of 1924, and he probably started working on this larger project of a world history right from the beginning in these years. And he probably worked on it all through the rest of his life, essentially, the final 12 years. Um, the problem with the notes upon which these uh, the two terms are based is that most of them are not dated, so it's not quite possible to tell which have been written when. Um, the original German preface of the two, two terms dates the works for primal questions, largely to 1926-27, and they guess, essentially, that the works for uh, early days of world history were done in uh, 33, 34, 35, right until his death in, in 1936, uh, really. Uh, Man and Techniques was uh, published in 1931 and based on a speech held in, in 1931, and uh, the hour of decision was was published in thirty three, and that was his last published full volume. Um, essentially, yes. I mean, the two smaller essays on the uh, history of the second millennium BC were published after that, and he had like very minor essays. I think the one he held, uh, the one he wrote on the 
the, the impact of the chariot on world history, which is e- easily less than 20 pages long, I think, um, was, was also published after that. But uh, The Hour of Decision is his last published major work. That sounds fascinating. So is it too broad of a question to ask how he characterizes the effect of prehistory on the high civilizations? It sounds like you were saying before that, um, like I know in, in the volume, uh, one and two of Decline of the West, he does say each of these civilizations arise distinctly from one another. It sounds like you were saying that, um, the, the, um, early stages of world history actually offers a perspective that there is some connection, if I'm understanding correctly. Well, based off of what I was saying, it's slightly different. So you can imagine that decline of the West, insofar as it talks about the high cultures, you know, the high cultures are identified as one species, right? And the best analogy perhaps would be plants. So Spengler says that these high cultures, that they are born in a specific place and time, that they remain rooted to the soil, and that as a consequence, uh, you know, their their inner idea uh, is largely dependent on that uh, landscape from which they emerged. But what Spangler is identifying here is that there's kind of a different uh, analogy for these different pre-cultures. So if uh, the D-culture's best analogy would be the plant, uh, Spangler says that these pre-cultures or these C-cultures, that, that they act more like these amoeba, that they're these kind of mobile uh you know, pre-cultural constellations that float around uh, and kind of interact in different ways. And it's just kind of a a different idea uh, regarding whether there is any sort of continuity between, you know, the pre-cultures and, uh, you know, the high cultures. Um, There certainly is. There's always an element of uh, pseudomorphosis that's at play that what comes before will inevitably shape what comes after. But um, that's kind of more what I meant. It's a different analogy of a different species almost. Yeah, it's good. It sounds like he's introducing new concepts to sort of incorporate into his perspective. Now, Hour of Decision has a lot of history in it, but I wouldn't call it a history book. It's it's a political book, uh, whereas Man and Technics is rather metaphysical, for lack of a better term. Um, do you know, this is a little bit change of tack and we can get back on track if you'd like after I ask this, but what inspired him to write the hour of decision at that time? Uh, well, really enough, a buddy asked him to, um, um, I mean, after, after 1924, the Weimar Republic had stabilized for quite some time and this all got uh, thrown back into disarray in uh, starting with the, the great depression, really. And the summer of 1932 was the most uh, heated the Weimar Republic had been for, for several years, at least since late 1923, I'd say. And in that time, he was essentially asked by an industrialist to, uh, re- to address the, the issue of politics once again. And this is essentially the, the moment when, when Spengler started to work on uh, the hour of decision. Um, the, uh, original planned title was uh, Germany in Danger, but he he changed that title after uh, after the Austrian painter came to power to uh, the Hour of Decision. Um, it's a bit weird that this was chosen as the translation. The literal translation of the title would have been the Years of Decision. But anyway, I guess 
it works. And um, similar to to the other stuff that he was working on at the time, um, The Hour of Decision is actually just the first volume. So there was at least a second volume planned, but he never uh, never got around to, to finishing that. So the only thing we have for that is a couple of notes. It's kind of unfortunate that it got translated as Hours of Decision because Years of Decision certainly makes it seem closer to what Spangler meant, that, that there was the, these pivotal years that the West had entered and you know the next stage of Western civilization really depended on these years. Yes, certainly. Um, uh, it, was, it was a pretty funny because, uh, as you probably all know, um, Spengler did not get along with, with, with the Nazis or the painter, and um, things got so, so well, I don't want to say wild, but it got so far that uh, it was rumored that they had him killed that he uh, had been killed by the SS. And, uh, the, the, well, essentially, conspiracy theories went to, to the point where people claimed that the second volume, the secret second volume of the Hour of Decision was somewhere in a, in a Swiss bank vault waiting for the, for the day when it would uh, see the light of day. But um, no such work was ever ever written. Uh, in that sense, and uh, when we talked a bit about this uh, off-stream, it's essentially like the second volume for, for Being and Time by, <laughs> by Heidegger, which was also never written. So the final, the first volume ended up just being the, the whole thing. I, I believe this, by the way. The, the Nazis had Spangler killed. I believe this. R- really? Why? No, not really, but... It is fun, funny to imagine. But, um, Mana, you had a really good thread uh, a few months ago. We were discussing um, the uh, the well-known or perhaps not so well-known Spangler-Hitler meeting. Well, um, uh, if you don't mind me interjecting in your answer, I'm really interested in the uh, Spangler being in and then falling out of favor of the Nazis. And... Um, how he was sort of actively working for the Weimar Republic. And then he ended up kind of becoming a persona non grata as I understand it. So yeah, that was a great question, Spurgler. And I just wanted to interject, um, give us the whole picture here of like, maybe even starting with how wildly successful and popular Spengler was, because I think that will help uh, us understand sort of the falling out later that he experienced. Uh, Spengler was arguably, in terms of the copies sold, the most important philosopher of the Weimar Republic, and uh, probably one of the most read German authors globally in the in the 1920s. Um, the Decline of the West was, of course, a, a massive success, selling tens of thousands of copies, which is, of course, wild considering we're talking about a complicated book uh, covering more than more than 1,100 pages. And um, most of his minor writings during the 1920s were not quite as successful. However, The Hour of Decision, once again, was a, a roaring success, selling, I think, over 100,000 copies uh, in, uh, within a few months. Um, the issue with Spengler in the political realm and his relation to the, to the Nazis uh, is partially that his political activity was mostly tied to the um to the the beginnings of the Weimar Republic and it 
mostly ended uh, after 1924, uh, whereas the Nazis didn't really play a large part, uh, a large uh, role in German politics until 1930-1931. Now, I think one of the issues that Spengler had with the Nazis is that they saw that he saw the very beginnings of the party in 1918-1919 in Munich. Um, he was he was present during during all of it, all the craziness that that uh, went down there, and I think he uh, he knew Hitler not personally, but he knew him uh, in in passing, or he had seen him publicly uh, way before he was uh, he was um, he was famous, and um, Spengler was also a, a close friend of Gregor Strasser, one of Hitler's adversaries in the party. And um, several other friends of Spengler were killed in the, the Night of the Long Knives in, in 1934. So in, in essence, Spengler was part of a network of people who, or an informal network of people who bitterly rejected the Weimar Republic, but who had seen too much of, uh, of Hitler to, to, really take him, to really take him serious. Um, Hitler, uh, Spengler, was, as uh, many people know, fond of, of Mussolini. He was quite impressed by by, uh, by Mussolini and the, the way he carried himself. And um, in comparison, he just just never quite could uh, could come to terms with uh, the main oppositional party to the Weimar Republic. From a certain point on, was was led by well, this guy he had he had known in Munich for for over a decade. And I think the criticisms he had were not not purely doctrinal or ideological, but in large part just the the man itself. The well, I don't want to say he didn't pass the physiognomy check, but <laughs> I think he was utterly unimpressed by the the, the character, the in in many ways lowbrow, um, uh, well approach and, uh, and public uh, public persona that that he portrayed. Um, many people nowadays don't get this, but the the look that Hitler presented when he was out in public during the late Weimar Republic was pretty weird. At times he wore the, the party uniform, of course, and in other days he would wear a large trench coat. And many people had the, the distinct impression that this was modeled after Hollywood gangster movies. And I'm not, not even making this up. Several Several conservative critics of, of uh, Hitler explicitly related him to the aesthetic of, um, well, essentially early Hollywood gangster movies like Little Caesar and, and so on. They um, they just never could get over the fact that this petty bourgeois guy with poor manners, who is not nearly as well read as he liked to pretend, would uh, rise through the ranks and well, essentially rule over people they consider to be uh, his better. Yeah, I think now, because we live in an era in which, you know, all of our rulers are kind of of this ilk, that they all come from uh, plebs, that, you know, at that time in Germany, you know, less than 20 years ago, Germany had still been a monarchy that, you know, the aristocratic classes still had, you know, great uh, political persuasion uh, and this is kind of like the very first time uh, in Germany, perhaps, maybe not perhaps the first time, but 
uh, it's significant that you have these real men from the plebs that are actually starting to rise up and uh, kind of represent this pleb mode of politics. And that's one of the things that Spangler kind of, you know, refers to Hitler quite a number of times. I, if I'm not mistaken, in a letter to his sister, he says that uh, when, when one sits in a room with him, you know, there's no indication whatsoever that this man will be anything significant in world history, which is, you know, of course, a very funny thing to say about perhaps one of the most transformative men of the 20th century. But at the same time, you know, there's something still there that Spangler realized that this was just going to be a blip in the pan. You know, Spangler, I think at some other point, he had quipped that uh, that Hitler was a lot closer to like, Napoleon, that he was a, a, romantic, a romantic figure uh, when Germany didn't need a romantic figure at that time. What they needed was someone who was a bit more hard-nosed than uh, what Hitler offered. Mono, I'm wondering if you can lay out a dynamic for us that I think is lost on a lot of people. I know it was lost on me until I really started to try to learn a little bit more about this period. The dynamic between the, I don't know what to call them, classes or castes in Weimar Germany is very different from what we have in America now or in Western Europe uh, in general. And it gets to what Spurgler was saying about this uh, aristocratic uh, class or this upper class people. Um, because I know when when uh, Hitler started out in the early 20s, he uh, had the support of the German military and, of course, the German military, or at least part of the German military. So, for example, he had the support of uh, the military high commander uh, Ludendorff, uh, as well as the veterans, the, the, the hardened veterans who had seen, you know, hardcore action and trench warfare. So he had on his side uh mobilized military people who were very disgruntled about the terms of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, and he also had the the aristocrats who sort of saw things much, much differently and saw basically they saw the the power dynamics in Germany slipping away and moving towards, you know, democracy. And they were fighting over democracy and socialism and the Socialist Party and the Democratic Party's uh were pretty strong and pretty active at the time. So Hitler had this like really, really active foment of, of political uh, incendiary political positions with actors who had, uh, pretty fervent and strong claims for legitimacy for where to take the future of Germany. And, uh, the really interesting thing to me is that there were people early on when Hitler was, I wouldn't say a nobody, but when he was just one of many people, there were people who were backing him and behind him, I think be- just because of his charisma and his power, his power of speech, where um, it kind of makes sense to me that someone like Spengler might see him as a minor figure, I guess is the best way to put it. So I don't know how well I characterize the dynamics of the classes and politics at the time, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this uh, juxtaposition and the interplay between this, especially in, say, the intervening years after World War One into, say, early 24, 25 of the Weimar Republic. No, no I think you characterized it generally well. I think one of the... Uh, if I may, I would take one step back and look at the, the situation in Imperial Germany. Um, the 
funny thing about Imperial Germany was that the constitution was essentially drafted to suit the needs of Bismarck, to govern the country as he saw fit. And the, if you will, uh, Article Zero of the constitution was that Bismarck and his buddies essentially compromise on all important things and they are in general agreement. The problem is that once Bismarck was no longer present, there was not really a, a balance of power in, in, in German government. It was all very much up in the air and a, a constant power vacuum existed. During the uh, years preceding World War I, this vacuum was increasingly filled by the parties in Parliament, while during the war, since Parliament couldn't really do anything about it, um, the military high command started to absorb more and more government functions. Now, the issue with that was, of course, that when the war ended and the German military was effectively disbanded, um, there was quite literally no government left. There was no government, there was no military, there was essentially nothing. Now, the only thing that existed were political parties. However, plenty of them essentially ceased to exist uh, during the war, too, which essentially left the Social Democrats and the Catholic Center Party as the, the only parties left standing. Prior to the Weimar Constitution being drafted in the first half of 1919, um, several bourgeois and conservative and what have you parties tried to form. But when the Constitutional Assembly was elected, many of these parties had existed for three or four weeks. So it was a, a thumping victory for the Social Democrats, which then proceeded to, to write a constitution as they saw fit. One of the persistent issues of the Weimar Republic that already preceded uh, the Weimar Republic was that the political parties did not manage to transcend one specific political milieu. So you could generally tell by the sociological situation of a voter who he would vote for. And um, on a, in terms of income, in terms of the question whether he was Catholic or Protestant, in terms of... Uh, regional affiliation, and no party really managed to, to break through that, that mold until Hitler. Uh, the, the NSDAP was truly the first party in Germany who managed to, to break up the, the old structure between the milieus and to essentially politically integrate them into one broad movement. And um, I think one of the one of the issues that many conservatives like Spengler had was that essentially the, the old elite of imperial Germany were, were just done for politically. And if you look at close friends of Spengler's, like industrialists as Paul Reusch, they had been integrated into the aristocratic style of imperial Germany uh, very well. They lived in manor houses, they acted in a essentially feudal way towards their workers. So, broadly speaking, the German public was not discontent with Imperial Germany, and um, they had fairly capable elites, but essentially from one day to the other, it, all of this was more or less worthless, and during the 1920s, none of them really managed to stage a political comeback. It was very um, milquetoast and toothless, and I think one of the main factors that eventually led to the success of the NSDAP was that all the normal 
approaches, if you will, to change course in the Weimar Republic had utterly failed. Um, the Republic had a clear-cut vector, and certain political and economic reforms were simply not on the table. Um, and uh, this more or less evoked two different kinds of reactions. One of them was to um, essentially join ranks with the Nazis, and the other was to, uh, I don't want to say give up, but to distance yourself from the day-to-day politics, as Spengler did. Yeah, this is fascinating. Okay, so I'm not sure where to go from here. I I, I sort of have a question I want to ask that's skipping a lot, but I want to, before I ask that, because it's it's going to skip over a good eight, seven, eight years here from what you just laid out, uh, I'll, I'll let Spurgler come in first. Yeah, so some of the things that Mono is talking about, you see this a lot in his political, in Spangler's political writings. So for anybody that's listening that's interested in his kind of political writings, uh, a lot of this is in Prussianism and socialism. And I believe in English, possibly in the German edition as well, it's usually published as a larger edition that has quite a few of his political essays. Um, some of them, include uh, tasks of the nobility. I think that was originally a speech delivered in 1924. And uh, just as kind of Mono said, it's kind of the same thing. You know, Spangler, he was kind of, uh, you know, he strongly believed that the aristocracy in Germany was going to have to kind of like reassert itself and to to lead the nation. And, And Impressionism and Socialism, which I think was published in 1921, uh, he gives this idea that uh, the kind of the polity, the party politics that were going on in the Weimar Republic at that time, that it was some sort of English pseudomorphosis uh, that uh, had been transposed onto Germany. And that in order for Germany to proceed in, into its destiny, that it was going to have to get rid of that, that, you know, the parties aren't, uh, the parties couldn't be the dominant force and that Germany would have to make sure that the state was the dominant force so I'm sure it was, uh, you know, kind of Spengler rem- or feeling the, the the spirit of the times with uh, the lack of a very strong central government in the uh, the wake of the destruction of the imperial government in 1918 or whenever that happened. So I know um, you guys were tweeting about this. You guys were having an exchange that Spengler referred to and uh, – Spengler's work was brought to Hitler by one of his followers. I, I think Mono mentioned his name earlier. I forget who it was. And uh, Hitler referred to him as a pessimist, and he didn't think the pessimism in Spengler was good for the people. Um, I don't know if you have if you want to expand on that. If you have anything else to say about that? Interestingly, um, decline of the West being as pessimistic as it is, I feel that. Man and Technics and the Hour of Decision are markedly more pessimistic. Um, and he published those right around the time uh, Hitler made those comments about him being pessimistic. Um, I think, yes, the, the, the pessimism part was, was certainly a, a dividing line between Spengler and the Nazis. Um, I mean, I don't want to uh, go too deep into the the weeds here, but essentially the, there was a strong achilleastic component uh, with, the, with the Nazis, which was still looking at some kind of uh, national salvation. And um, I think the, the stone 
cold realist uh, vision of uh, of Spengler was not quite not quite compatible with that and um i think one of the one of the most overlooked aspects by most mainstream scholars of course uh, when looking at the nazis is um essentially captured in that that one line by the the party anthem of the the NSDAP the the Horst Wessellied uh, which stated um essentially the reds and the reactionaries ought to be shot um uh, so th- there was a very strong divide in in, in german politics uh, between people perceived to be reactionaries and people perceived to be um revolutionary essentially or well i don't want to say progressive but you know what i mean like <laughs> forward looking in a way and spengler simply had too much disdain for the masses too much um he enjoyed the company of of captains of industry too much to um to truly be down for that um he I mentioned earlier that he had seen the NSDAP rise from literally just being a couple of guys sitting around in a in a bar to uh, to the largest party in the nation. So I think he could he could never quite reconcile the the, um, the plump and uh, simple reality with a, with a grandiose guest- gesture. And um, ultimately, I think he was. Um, well, I don't want to psychologize, but I, I think he just he hated the very idea of a revolutionary movement. I think he was simply not down for that. Well, it's it all this stuff is all tied up together because I know that these folks were just uh, completely dissatisfied with the terms of the the end of World War One and the Versailles Treaty, and the military felt like they were uh, sold out by the the politics. And that the sort of the mission these guys were on was carrying that through all the way from World War One. And, you know, (laughs) I said earlier, I I, I can understand why Spengler might look down on Hitler and not because it's really fascinating to see how fervently some people were behind Hitler really early. But later on, for Hit, for Spengler to to continue uh, with his uh, disavowal of Hitler, um, makes me scratch my head, based on some of the contents in his book and based on how well he knows Nietzsche. So this is a question actually for both of you. You want to talk about get off in the weeds? Here we go. Um, so so I see a lot of Spengler's perspective on um, Caesarism. To be merely an elaboration on some observations uh, Nietzsche made. And the gay science is very important to the decline of the West because of a few passages. But his Caesarism passage, uh, he talks about uh, people becoming exhausted and becoming worn out. And that the Caesar figure comes along and sort of reinvigorates them and reawakens their spirit and revitalizes them. And in that passage, he talks about the autumn of a people when they're worn out and spiritually sort of exhausted. He calls that the autumn of a people. And of course, uh, Spengler picks this language up and uses uh, the, the season phases of the civilizations. He also elaborates a lot on... Um, on um, the, the Caesar figure, and in the Caesar figure, 
uh, chapter, the, the emperor worship chapter in volume two, he talks a lot about how worn out people become by materialism and a materialistic, the burden of a materialistic world worldview and that the religious um, impetus of an earlier phase is sort of copied in the second religiousness and the proliferation of cults and sort of uh, transposed onto the figure of the Caesar who sort of reimbues them with some sort of religious type nationalist pride and, and kind of uh, reinvigorates them. Now, how he lived through the rise of Adolf Hitler and did not see the analogy between what was playing out in front of him and what he wrote in volume two just defies logic for me. Uh, but maybe I'm superimposing too much of it onto it from my uh, per historical perspective. And I'm very interested in what both of you guys think about that. Astro, that's a great observation. And actually, you're not the first one to point out that seeming contradiction. Uh, Nietzsche's sister, Elizabeth uh, Forster Nietzsche, in a letter to Spengler, actually said basically the same thing. Uh, so Spengler, for a long time, was the head of the Nietzsche archive, and that was also owned by uh, Nietzsche's sister. And at around the time that the Nazis were starting to come to power, Nietzsche, or sorry, Spengler left the Nietzsche archive, and Nietzsche's sister... Uh, was sending him some letters asking, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving us? Does it have something to do with my political affiliations? Uh, and that probably was part of it. And Nietzsche's sister asked Spangler, uh, you know, why do you not support the Fuhrer? Why do you not support Hitler? Is his national socialism not the Prussian socialism that you wrote about? And it's kind of this complicated question. So why is Hitler not the German Caesar? Um, there's a few ways to kind of go about answering that, I think. You know, if we're going to be uh, good Spenglerians and in turn good good uh, acolytes of Goethe, you have to do some comparisons between uh, the different time periods. So to compare who Julius Caesar was or who Augustus was to Hitler, and I think that kind of illustrates why they were different. You know, Hitler was someone who came from a pretty lowly background, as far as I can understand. Um you know, the the sorts of elites that really transformed uh, classical civilization into a military empire, into an imperium mundi, uh, they were they were aristocrats through and through. You know, Julius Caesar was from one of the top three most noble families in the Roman uh, world. The uh, I believe it was the the Julia clan or the gens. I forget exactly, you know, how it works. But uh, he was extremely aristocratic. And as a part of that, you know, Julius Caesar, he was really leading the masses in a way. Uh, while I think Spangler, when he saw, you know, Hitler's rise, you know, th this is just some, you know, pleb guy that came from, you know, a backwater province in Austria, you know, literally some mountain yokel that just kind of emerged. And all of a sudden, he's basically the... Uh, the figurehead of the plebs in Germany. You know, it's kind of this question of whether or not Hitler was really leading the plebs or whether or not they were leading him. So I think that's part of it. Um, and also it was just some of the ideas that uh, the Nazis were peddling at that time. You know, Spengler did not like uh, a lot of the things that the Nazis uh, were saying about uh, race in Europe uh, I think he's on on record for saying it doesn't matter 
the shape of skulls. It matters what's in them. You know, the Nazis at the time were very much into phrenology and all sorts of other things, although not just the Nazis, others too, but they were all into phrenology and Spengler didn't like that simplistic uh, idea of race. So that, that's also part of it. Um, interested to see what Mono has to say, but that's kind of my take on, on it, that the fundamental divide was that the people leading this supposedly, you know, Caesarist movement, it might look like a Caesarist movement, but uh, those who were leading it weren't very aristocratic, like the actual Caesars of the Roman world were. Yes, I think the point about the, the aristocratic background of Julius Caesar is, is spot on. And um, what we need to keep in mind about the NSDAP is that looking back at it, um, Hitler looks like the unquestioned leader who had like, absolute power and could essentially, uh, on a whim, decide whatever he wanted. And this was this was not the case during the Weimar Republic. Uh, not only did he have um, significant in a, a opposition within the NSDAP, notably Gregor Strasser, Spengler's friend, um, but also plenty of, of minor revolts and uh, even even mainstream politicians in the Weimar Republic speculated that that Hitler was essentially done um, during uh, during ni- the 1932. Um, in December of 1932, by the way, um, it was attempted to depose Hitler as the leader of the NSDAP, and uh, only by threatening suicide uh, he managed to to keep his post. So, um, the the elevated position that, uh, of course, in retrospect, he has was not as pronounced back in the day, and I think the this ties in with the, the spiritual and, and ideological background because um, diving into the hour of decision, I think it becomes apparent that for, for Spengler, the, the, a proper Caesar needs to have a, a cynical and uh, instrumental relation to, to ideology. He, uh, Caesar can never be high on his own supply. Um, he always needs to, needs to be above it all and he also needs to be an impressive person. Um, take Mussolini, who, who Spengler admired. He had an um, extremely uh, filled schedule. He was uh, heading several ministries uh, in his own government. Um, he was, I think, fairly tall by Italian standards. Was reasonably fit. I think many people have seen the <laughs> the photos from his personal gym by now. And he had been a man of letters who had who had been running a newspaper for years. Um, Whereas uh, Hitler did not have much of a formal education. He wasn't tall. He was not um, well-spoken in a, uh, or uh, he was not book smart, as, as you'd say. In the, I guess in, in a private conversation, this became more apparent than when he was just um, presenting a speech uh, publicly. So... I think on on several levels, uh, Hitler simply didn't pass for for a true Caesar in, in Spengler's mind. Okay, I think that goes a long way to kind of elucidating the concept of the Caesar. Um, we'll have to save m- more elaboration on the Caesar figure for another time, but that that answers my question quite well because I I did wonder. But I mean, how aristocratic was? Spengler was he a, a minor figure or was he? I didn't think he was at all, actually. A, a member of the aristocracy or the old old order, but I know he had that mindset. But 
Well, Spengler came from a small town in provincial Germany. His uh, father had been uh, a, a government employee in the post office. So Spengler, from his familiar background, was uh, not a noble by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think the, the closest his family ever got was um, a distant relative on his mother's side who was a dancer and who, who once performed uh, in, in, in uh, St. Petersburg in front of the Tsar. Um, but uh, generally speaking, I think uh, Spengler's family is, can be characterized as, as lower middle class, but um, to some degree they emulated the, the mannerisms of the aristocracy, as many people did in Germany. Um, at that at that time in the late 19th century, if you look at the the architecture of uh, new houses that were built, essentially the I think absolutely healthy situation was was reached where the middle class was emulating the aristocracy, and there was uh, dare I say a cultural trickle down effect from the, the noble courts to um, to even the the lower levels. So. Um, Spengler's demand for uh, a somewhat uh, aristocratic uh, approach or aristocratic background, or at least emulating the aristocracy, uh, stems from him being being socialized in a society that that greatly valued all of this. Well said, Spurgler. I wonder if you have any more comments or questions on this uh, historical context and the relationship Spengler had to politics before we move on to to more metaphysical questions and more the contents of his books. Uh, no, let's let's move on. Yes, that's excellent. Now, I I want to ask you guys. Maybe this will be a way in. Do you feel that Spengler was? Right. Does it feel like we're living in Spengler's uh, decline phase? Um, I can't help but be completely taken over by his perspective and the way he lays it out, especially in uh, the Decline of the West books, but um, the Hour of Decision as well. He pretty much lays out in rather minute specificity on how the relationship between communism and capitalism which he calls two sides of the same coin of liberalism is going to play out and the way in which it's going to sort of subsume and swallow the Anglo Anglo world and the West in general was seems pretty spot on not to mention the decadence of culture that he lays out in the, in the decline of the West. So uh, I, I, I think it's sort of a given that we're paying attention to Spengler to this extent because we think that we are living in the world Spangler described and that his predictions uh, hold a lot of weight and a lot of historical value. But if you guys want to uh, confirm or deny that and elaborate on it in whatever way you see fit, um, and just so we don't um, have any confusion, I'll just have Spurgler go first and then uh, Mono perhaps riff from what he says or whatever comes to your mind. Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, in some sense, it's an epistemological question, right? Uh, how do we know that you know the destiny of civilization is as uh, Spengler outlines that it's destined to uh, decline? And I think one of the biggest ways we can quote unquote know uh, is the way that Spengler kind of explains how destiny operates. You know, in some sense. I think it's a, is that a Leon Trotsky quote that, uh, you might not be interested in history, but history is interested, uh, interested in you. 
in some sense, when, you know, there are these pivotal moments of a civilization's destiny as it kind of unfolds. And you can really feel yourself insofar as you are a part of that destiny. Uh, you can really feel it. And that that's kind of all I can say in terms of how we know Spengler might be right or why I think he's right. That when I read his, you know, works, you know, they're just so poetically moving that I can really kind of feel myself on an emotional level kind of, uh, you know, attached to it. So, I, but that's part of it. But there's also a bit more to that. It's not just the sentimental uh, aspect. Uh, Spengler, he just does a very good job at kind of outlining the development of civilizations or what we might say high, these high cultures or decultures, if we go back to uh, the early days of world history, that they all tend to follow this very, uh, you know, precise, uh, very systematic development that they kind of, you know, progress from this early rural intuitive era uh, all the way up until uh, it hits a kind of this megalopolitan, uh, you know, very industrial, or not industrialized, but this megalopolitan uh, world in which, you know, uh, things kind of, kind of lost my train of thought there, but uh, they just kind of uh, slowly, you know, if you look at someone like Max Weber, they would say it's kind of this transition from this more religious phase to a more rationalized phase. And Spangler just does a very good job at demonstrating how that occurs in basically every culture. And uh, insofar as you think that he's, you know, adduced the right, you know, historical evidence, uh, I think we can be pretty certain at least that uh, Spangler's right, that there's this tendency in cultures to kind of develop uh, in the way he outlines in Decline of the West. Yeah, you did a good job characterizing that. I just wanted to jump in and say um, perhaps the term you were thinking trying to think of was ossify that these megalopolitan cultures ossify and they no longer sort of develop um, not necessarily in a material sense but in a metaphysical sense both uh, culturally spiritually and materially that they they come out of the they come out of nature and then they go through the developmental stages that he outlines and then they ossify and they're no longer going through those stages and there's like a return to nature yeah, that, that's exactly it. You know, for Spengler, uh, he's as much of a historian as he is a biologist in some ways. Uh, these cultures for Spengler, they, it's not just an analogy, in my opinion, that, you know, they actually are organic, that they are in some sense alive. Um, and, you know, all things that are alive are destined to be born, to grow, to mature, and to die. And uh, we very much see that at work in, in Spengler's work uh, in his writings. Matt, to, to go back to the, the, the question you posed, was Spengler right? And yes, I will go on record. I think he was right. He was, he was absolutely right, both in, a, both in the, the general outlook as well as in the, the specific case of Western Palestinian culture. Um, I think big picture-wise, I don't want to say it's over, but it's, it, it's kind of over. Um, <laughs> uh, I think re relating to Spengler, we can reasonably hope for some kind of uh, new order emerging to keep at least the civilizational uh, mannerisms, the outer forms, to uh, going for another 200, 300 years, maybe comparable to the uh, Islamic caliphates after Magian culture had uh, run its course. But I think 
big picture wise, there will not be a, a grand spiritual renewal. And from the going back from the macro level, think, do you sometimes take public transportation? I find it so, so glaring that, um, there something is deeply, deeply wrong. Um, the, I think that at, at the very least with, with people, you should count that they have sort of uh, healthy instincts that, um, work in the, in the favor of their, their, uh, themselves, their families, their communities. And I think in a very literal sense, the, the basic instincts that have evolved over at least the last 100 years, um, are literally sick, sick and perverted. Um, and I don't mean that in the, the, the Phyllis Schlafly way, but in the, in the, in the general way of, uh, not being fit to, to further, uh, human flourishment. So, uh, I think generally speaking, yes, Spengler was, Spengler was correct. Yes. I agree with this. Uh, I think sick is a good word. You could also say pathological. Um, yeah, there's a really great book written by a German gentleman whose name I'll be able to dig up in a moment called uh, Western Self-Contempt, Oikophobia. Are you familiar with this book, Mono? I believe, um, it, was I believe it was first published in German. Uh, I'm familiar with the term oikophobia. I first heard it, I think, in a Black Pigeon Speaks video about Roger Scruton, but I couldn't. Yeah. I, I don't really know which German no, that... author you might refer to. Yeah, no, you have a you have a sharp memory because the guy who wrote the book, uh, yeah, he fashioned it after Roger Scruton's discussion of oikophobia, which is basically right. like a version to the homeland. But um, you know, this guy doesn't really mention Spengler in the book, but he he absolutely must have read him. I I, I wonder why he wouldn't mention him. But uh, he characterizes what you're talking about uh, as this uh, malaise that sets in after a culture sort of fulfills its destiny now i'm using that term from spengler that, that phrase is not in the book but once they've sort of achieved uh the 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 uh, apex of the forms and we'll talk about the forms in a moment once they've sort of achieved the apex of the forms there's sort of nothing left for them to do and the the outward push and the outward focus and the energy that was used to to uh sort of established grow expand and then reestablish and sort of uh, reassert the culture to kind of lock it in place, then starts to, uh, there's nowhere else for it to go. So a great example of this is um, Hadrian in uh, Rome, where he, you know, decides not to expand the empire and to shore up its borders instead. That's the moment when uh, oikophobia starts to set in. Now this, this author, actually says oikophobia started setting in a little bit earlier in imperial rome but uh, that that was really like the 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 demarcating line of when rome sort sort of started to turn in on itself and that's generally accepted as you know uh your standard historian generally agrees with that but he goes through Fran french english american uh Greek Greek history and starts to talk about like hatred of the self and the homeland and all the energy that used to go towards expansion is now going towards uh, attacking each other, criticizing their neighbors, uh, criticizing uh, other their equals or their betters. And, you know, Spengler talks about this, of course, with like intense self scrutiny. 
Um, he doesn't use the term oikophobia or even the concept really, but he talks about intense self-scrutiny. So you see these temperance movements where they start to renounce alcohol when alcohol was, of course, uh, an integral part of the growth of all Western cultures, um, which is an irrefutable fact. But it then becomes this vice uh, once you reach a certain level of decadence. Vegetarianism, he talks about being uh, uh, this like uh, this phase of intense self-scrutiny. And it's basically like when the, the culture starts to turn inward and sort of consume itself in a way. And this is also the period of the Falahin. And it's sort of like the leftover folks who are both, say, the people from the countryside who are like subjects of the empire who end up being dispossessed of their land and they end up in the cities, as well as uh, former enfranchised members of the of the empire, be it um, farmers who got kicked off their land for whatever reason. I know in Rome there was a big problem with land reform or uh, – Soldiers would be off on their 25 years of mandatory service, and they couldn't maintain their farms back home, so they lose them. So these folks turn into the rabble. Um, and uh, who can deny that you're seeing this sort of thing? Now, now these I should specify that these folks that are dispossessed of their land, these falahin, were originally the very people that helped build the culture, who are now kind of uh, – given they're sort of the the useless rabble with nothing to do. Uh, And these are the people that Caesar, of course, uh, appeals to. And these are the people to whom bread and circuses are thrown. So in that that sense, that's one of the many ways in which I see, you know, if you look at Europe and you look at the the mobs of immigrants, of course, causing problems, refugees, excuse me. But uh, also, you know, if you look at American politics, now this isn't my position, but this is certainly how this is characterized. The folks that got really fervent for Trump, um, of course, they're at least some of them dispossessed uh, because of uh, outsourcing of manufacturing, which was a big uh, rallying point for Trump uh, to repatriate manufacturing. Um, So, yeah, in my opinion, uh, he's certainly um, being proven correct time and time again. And to throw one last thing out there, because I I mentioned the refugees, um, I mentioned that for a reason. It's not just from like, it's not just from like uh, obstinate, you know, racism as the left might try to characterize it. But he, he lays out in um, the hour of decision that this is part of a premeditated plan on purpose where the powers that be, and he calls them like the money people, the financial capitalists and the speculators, the wall street speculators, not the owners of industry necessarily, or at least not the managers of industry, but the speculators and the Wall Street people, not the entrepreneurs, uh, import vast hordes of third world labor. He calls this the colored world revolution uh, to to specifically to disenfranchise the enfranchised because they are a political voting block that will vote for their own interests and against the interest of the of the money to elite. Um, so he like very, and he said it was going to take about a hundred years for this to play out. It's more complicated than that. There's a whole nother factor that I skipped over. Uh, so you have to read the book, but, um, he, he wrote this in 1933 saying it would take about a hundred years for this to fully play out. And, um, you know, you can't read this book without thinking that, uh, the subsequent century after his, his predictions are, um, are, are bearing out. Now, uh, I had another question, but I, I want to let you guys have a chance to respond to that if you had anything to say. It's just incredible how prescient uh, Spangler was. It, when you read it, especially now, 
uh, there's just something that's so uncanny about it. You know, at the time when it was first published, I think, you know, the book was a lot more speculative in some ways, but, you know, with the hindsight that we have now, or just our own modern perspective, the way it reads is just, like I said, uncanny. The the sorts of things and dynamics that Spengler kind of uh, predicted. Like I, in the recent space we did on man technics, he Spengler gives this kind of like sociological explanation for the way technology is diffused into like the third world or the colored world, and uh, it's exactly right. And it's obviously become much more significant now with the the quote unquote like rise of the global south. But yeah, it's just incredibly prescient. Well, I think this, to some degree, ties into a to a discussion that that reemerges every every now and then in this neck of the woods, namely the conflict between um, or the question which what takes precedent, ideology or um, or the interest of money and power. Um, because, well, undoubtedly, uh, moneyed interest is uh, pulling quite a lot of strings. But they, of course, have drunk the Kool-Aid themselves too, to to some degree. Um, I mean, you maybe have uh, have followed some of the streams academic agent does on Tony Blair, and uh, they always stop at one point that at the heart of the matter for Tony Blair is a, a, a sick and twisted worldview, and to some degree, such a deracinated worldview, of course, um, intersects with um, uh, cynical moneyed interests in in the sense that a uh, um, essentially the falahi are no different to the purely utilitarian cynical uh, pencil pusher who has no um, feeling of allegiance to his own king or. Whatever you, however you want to put it, and um, this of course has, has exactly the same functional result as uh, someone who's, who's openly oikophobic. So I think, um, in that sense, it's uh, highly prescient what, what, what Spengler had to say about that. Uh, yes, yes, it's very interesting uh, that you mentioned Tony Blair because the whole reason I read um, the Hour of Decision is because the phenomenal introduction for to man and technics in the arctos press version the, the introduction is worth the book alone uh he talks about the hour of decision and um he says in the hour of decision that uh where spengler's getting this from and and the reason he's able to make this for lack of a better term prediction it's not exactly a prediction it's just sort of a it's sort of an observation of things that were already happening and how they were going to play out um, is the way the English use their Indian subjects to administer their empire for them in South America or, or administer their uh, colonial holdings in South America and also imported them to use them in World War One and taught them the ways of war. And, you know, Spengler observed this is just madness that these people are now uh learning the way Western ways of war and uh, political administration. Of course, they're going to turn that on us and you know take us over uh that way and he also talks about uh, which is further madness is a liberal education that they receive in western schools includes education about karl marx and socialism and egalitarianism so um he's saying that the insidious effect that communism has on on the white world and 
that chapter is called the white world revolution is going to happen to so you're going to get like a double whammy you're going to give these people the tools for taking over your culture and you're also going to educate them in the resentment um of marxism to have a reason to take over your culture so uh this was briefly outlined in the intro in man to man and technics and when rishi sunak i think i'm saying his name right became the prime minister of england i was like well okay so spangler's prediction just came true now i have to read that book um so i'm running out of time but we have enough uh this this it should be very clear to late listeners that this needs to be a series i mean and me and spurgler have talked about this we've we've we basically started a sort of a de facto book club of sorts where we we plan to discuss um further readings that are sort of in the vein of man and technics and spengler in general and mono we would be delighted and overjoyed to have you there for as much of it as you're you're willing to um so i'm going to take us out on one last question that we can uh, use as a discussion topic but it's a little bit presumptuous because i am not uh, a philosophy person that's not my primary interest and in as far as i can tell it's not yours either but i still want to ask because me and spurgler were talking about the relationship between heidegger and spengler and heidegger's uh i i don't remember ever coming across any evidence that spengler took note of heidegger at all or regarded him in any way i happy to be corrected on that but we do know that heidegger read spengler referred to him critiqued his work uh, and and criticized it and praised it elsewhere. One of the critiques Heidegger had of Spengler is that he was a Platonist, which I've been mulling over ever, ever since, because my understanding of Spengler has always been Aristotelian. Um, and even if you guys aren't like philosophy, uh, you know, uh, Spurgs, <laughs> the basic concept should be clear in that the, the platonic forms are like these idealized forms that exist sort of in nature but aren't really accessible anywhere except through, the, you know, human cognitive function and that uh, reality can do nothing but sort of approximate these perfect forms and that we're sort of um, – uh, nature is always sort of manifesting through these forms but they never truly attain the pure highest form. The reason I never thought of Spengler as a Platonist, though, is because as far as I understand Platonism, the forms are pre-existing. They're not even pre-existing. They're existing in this, like, ineffable plane of imminence that uh, is really only accessible through the human mind, and it's it's transcendent in a way, and that they're this, like, preset form of perfection that matter sort of comes to fill in a way, right? And that um, you can only attain the perfection of certain forms uh, through approximation. So the, they have everywhere from a circle, a perfect circle, to the form of the good. And this is what Greek uh, – uh, everything from Greek philosophers to Greek astronomers were trying to approximate. I never thought Spengler's conception of the cultural forms were these uh, preset – pre-existing forms that the culture came along to sort of fill or achieve or accomplish. Rather, I saw them more uh, in the Aristotelian sense that he says the form of the oak tree is in the acorn, but in order to get at the essence of the oak tree, you don't contemplate the pure form of the oak tree. You rather observe uh, 
any number of oak trees and look for the common commonalities between them. And I took the the cultural forms that Spengler's talking about to be uh, more akin to that, that when the German culture took root, as he says, somewhere, I think he says between the Rhine and the Vistula, somewhere after uh, the turn of the millennium in the year 1000, that the seed of the Faustian was in that germination, uh, excuse me, yeah, that that was the seed of the Faustian germinating in that place with those people. And then as time went on, it went to uh, sort of fulfill its destiny as the Faustian culture. Um, but the Faustian culture wasn't something that already existed that they sort of uh, destined to. Uh, this is a word that Heidegger uses, by the way, that people destine towards their destiny. Um, and that germinating seed is going to grow into a different form, say, in the uh, uh, whatever he calls the medi medieval culture, the Magian culture, or the classical culture, the Apollonian culture of the Greeks. So if I've done a okay enough job sort of laying that out, I'm very interested in where you two stand on that, uh, the Platonic versus the Aristotelian uh, fulfillment of the forms. So I can't pretend to know exactly um, what Heidegger meant by calling Spengler a Platonist because I'm only scarcely familiar with Heidegger. I think uh, he even calls him the worst kind of Platonist, but don't quote me on, <laughs> don't quote me on that. Even worse then. Uh, and same for Aristotle. I, I only have a very understanding of Aristotle. But what I will say is that Spengler is perhaps a kind of quasi-Platonist. So if you look at the sort of, uh, you know, comparisons of figures that Spengler makes. Uh, this is very illustri illustrated very nicely at the back of volume one with those charts. Uh, Spengler draws an equivalence between Goethe, who was of extreme importance for Spengler, and Plato. Now, I, I think insofar as Goethe is a quasi-Platonist, perhaps Spengler was as well. But uh, maybe others would disagree calling Goethe that. So Goethe obviously very well known as a poet and a dramatist, but he was also uh, engaged in a number of scientific studies. And uh, one of them was his works on botany, on the study of plants. And for Goethe, his worldview uh, was that essentially everything was an organism of some sort. And within these organisms, they all had an idea in which, uh, you know, that organism strove to express. So, uh, he writes to a friend, Goethe writes to a friend while he's in Sicily, uh, describing how he finally ascertained the inner idea of plants and that that was the leaf. And he doesn't just mean the leaf, but this idea almost of leafing, of this fractal growing. Uh, and largely Spengler kind of adopts that, that he, he says that his cultures, the high cultures, that they too are organic and that they have their own inner forms that they seek to express over time. So it's kind of two parts. So partly it's archetypal, right? It's the archetypal development um, from spring, summer, autumn, winter, that it kind of goes from this rural mythological intuitive phase, eventually to the, the phase of winter in which it's megalopolitan, it's decrepit, it's ossified, as you said earlier. So that's half of it. The other half, however, is what makes the cultures unique. That yes, they all follow this, these stages of development, just as all plants follow the exact same stages of development. They go from seed to growth to flower to fruit and then back to seed. 
Um, but what makes the cultures unique is that they have their own uh, spatio-temporal ideas, you know, that they have their own represent representations of space and time. In a sense, they have their own aesthetic. So for the West, obviously, it's infinite space. Uh, you know, you can see this inside of a Gothic cathedral, while you know, classical civilization, it's the idea of the body in nearby space. And this is best represented by, uh, you know, Greek sculpture. But uh, regarding, you know, Spangler, is he some sort of Platonist? Uh, I, think, I think perhaps uh, there's like a whole bunch of questions about how you kind of know the inner form of a culture. Um, that also apply to how do you know the inner form of plants, as Goethe said. I, I would say, I guess, in that sense, um, you know, there's a bit of elements of both, as you were saying, that there's that idea of finding what's common between all the oak trees to determine its essence. And in some sense, Spengler's doing that, right, with uh, determining what's common with all these cultures to, to kind of develop their archetypal development. But it's also this idea of ascertaining a deeper inner form. That, that's his whole kind of method of physiognomy or physiognomics that, you know, you see the physio, the physical, and through that you intuit this deeper nomos, this inner law that, uh, or inner spirit almost, or custom that is within all living things. So I, I hope that kind of answers your question. You know, it's, it's a really fascinating topic and definitely should, you know, do another one of these where we perhaps go full board into that. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think that that will be the topic of the next time you guys come back. Um, so, Mano, we're going to sign off after you, you give your response. I'm very, very fascinated to hear what you have to say, though. All right. Now, um, I don't think the the notion that Spengler was a Platonist can be, can be dismissed outright. But I have to say it doesn't quite sit right with me because – my understanding of Platonism always re re um, revolved around a somewhat universal conception, whereas uh, Spengler, of course, is as fierce a particularist as it gets. Um, the the oak, the the form of the oak does not just stem from the acorn. It only could only have grown. It also could only have grown at this particular place at this particular time. Um, if the people who ended up being the founding stock for Faustian culture had lived in, I don't know, uh, Indonesia. <laughs> they would not have built Gothic cathedrals there because the unique relation between these people in this landscape at this time um, is not just something you could replicate um, uh, whenever you like. And I think one of the one of the things we need to keep in mind about this is that Spengler, as well as uh, Heidegger for that matter, broadly came from the family of Neo-Kantians, who was who were fairly prominent in, in academic philosophy in Germany in the late 19th century. And um, I'd like to highlight a man called Hans Weihinger, who was uh, an important teacher of, of, of Spengler. And he was one of the guys who Spengler sent a copy of The Decline of the West after it was published. And the main work of Hans Weihinger was a book who, which Tyler would translate to um, uh, The Philosophy of As If, which essentially was an, an, an early Bible of fictionalism. So I think if you want to put one 
label on, on Spengler in this, uh, in, in this context, I would say he is a fictionalist. So, um, alluding to that famous quip, I think by Cathevi and on, the woke are more correct than the, than the mainstream. To some degree, it is all a social construct, <laughs> just under, uh, curated under very, very specific circumstances. So, um, I don't quite, I don't, I don't think the, the, the notion of Stringler being a Platonist really fits here. Um, another name I'd quickly like to mention here is the name of the German philosopher Schelling, who's part of German idealism. And, um, Schelling was the main subject of interest for Spengler's friend Manfred Schröter, who helped to compile primal questions and early days of world history. So, uh, just putting it out there, if you read secondary literature to Spengler, uh, time and time again, or every now and then, the name Schelling might pop up. You know, that is partially due to uh, a Schelling scholar being one of the main interpreters and, uh, um, uh, executives of uh, of Spengler's estate, but to uh, to to put it briefly, no, I don't think Spengler can be categorized as a Platonist. I think, just broadly speaking, he was a, 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 a relativist and a fictionalist. I think that doesn't cover it all, but I think you know it broadly uh, gives a gives an idea of, of where he was headed. Okay, these were great comments, and that. That I I agree with you completely there, although you said it uh, more articulately than I could. Um, yeah, so everyone needs to to follow both of these gentlemen on Twitter because their tweets, as well as their interactions with each other, are like I have learned so much about both Spengler, um, but as well, uh, Germany uh, at the time and German politics at the time and the way Spengler kind of fits in with all of that because I had sort of read him decontextualized when I first read The Decline of the West. So um, I'll put their links to both their Twitter accounts in the show notes. And if you are interested in Spengler and if you've read him or if you're new to Spengler and you are able to hang through that, uh, because I hope I hope we were didn't get too, uh, too specific and we were, we were able to communicate that to a general audience – um, I, I highly recommend you take the time to go through both of their Twitter feeds and go back and read their tweets and um, maybe even put Spengler's name in the search bar on their, their Twitter page, which I've done. Um, it's like it's an education all in itself. So uh, where I'm out of time. Um, so I, I look forward to speaking with you gentlemen in the future and doing more of this. We uh, me and Spurgler have spoken about having some uh, reading. That sort of focuses on, I think we've talked, who have we talked about, Spurgler? We've talked about Elul. I can't remember who else, but we, we have some, some coming up. Uh, so Mano, anything you can join us for is, uh, much appreciated. Oh, yes. I'd love to. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks again very much for having me. Absolutely. And, uh, Spurgler, I'll give you last word. The Astro Flight Sign. <laughs> I, I do this every couple shows. I, I jumble the name of my own show. Uh, the Astral Flight Simulation is signing off. Hey, man. Just thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I always enjoy whatever opportunity I get to talk about Spangler. So thanks for having me.